Now, I knew that this weekend our uh, numbers in attendance would be lower than usual for several good reasons. One is because almost all of our teenagers, junior high and high school, are away at a retreat this weekend. And they're coming back this morning. We're praying for their safe return. And we know that's been a great experience for them. I also know of a lot of people in our church that are in Abilene, Texas this weekend for homecoming activities with Abilene Christian University seeing old friends or visiting their children. And then at least uh, at our 5 o'clock Saturday service yesterday, our attendance was really hit by the Ranger playoff baseball game. Now just wrap your mind around what I just said. The Rangers are winning a playoff baseball series, which can only mean one thing, that I'm announcing next week a new series titled, Preparing for the Soon Return of Jesus. <laughs> but right now, we're still in this series called Greater Things. If you're a guest, we are getting ready for a major capital campaign the second weekend of November. We're raising $10 million to plant more churches, to build a Christian university in Africa, to do more things in this campus right here and at other campuses that we plan to launch. And so we've talked about how this is a growing season for us. We're not just raising money. We're raising our level of commitment to the kingdom of God. We've talked about the importance of having greater vision and greater courage. How sacrifice brings greater joy. And I want to talk to you today about how sacrifice can lead to greater faith. Now, I start with a story that you might remember. It's one of my favorites. These two guys are stranded on a deserted island. And the first guy is frantic. He's screaming, we're going to die. We're going to die. We got no food. We got no water. We're going to die. The second guy calmly sits down, leans back against a palm tree, and begins to take a nap. And the first guy says, what are you doing? Aren't you worried? We got no food. We got no water. We're going to die. And the second guy says, no, I'm not worried. I make $100,000 a week. And the first guy says, who cares how much money you make? We're on a deserted island. We got no food. We got no water. We're going to die. And the second guy says, you don't get it. I make $100,000 a week and I tithe. My preacher's going to find me. (laughs) Because the truth is we do tend to notice people who offer great treasure. Anytime some billionaire promises to give millions of dollars to some charity, it makes headlines. We notice people who offer great treasure, but God notices people who offer great trust because God doesn't measure generosity by the amount of the offering, but by the amount of faith that offered it. And that's why in God's eyes, often the people who give the most are considered by society to be the least. And we'll see two examples of that in a moment. But first, I want us to face a question. Why do the children of God play keep away from their father? Now, I don't mean by that that the children of God don't give to God. But typically, they give to God out of what is left over. They give to God out of their excess, not out of what the Bible calls first fruits. Now, we're not an agrarian society, so first fruits doesn't mean much to us. 
But in the days of the Bible, when you live by the harvest, the idea of first fruits was when that harvest came in, the very first thing you harvested, you brought to God in confidence that the rest of the harvest would come in by His grace because you were faithful to your God. But typically today, especially if times are hard, we make sure every other contingency is taken care of. And if anything is left over, we give to God. Now this raises a concern. Because God told us to go into all the world and make disciples. And that's going to require funding. But we don't seem to have enough money to do what God told us to do. Therefore, it's God's fault, isn't it? God was not fair to give us a mission and not give us the resources to fund it. Is that what we really believe? See, write this down. Is the problem lack of funds or lack of faith? Here's what the Lord God says in Proverbs chapter 3. Honor the Lord... With your wealth, with the first fruits of your crops. And then your barns will be filled with overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. God says, don't make me second. Make me first and see what happens. Now, we have been wrestling with this question since the Garden of Eden. The basic question that Adam and Eve faced, that we have faced ever since, is this question. Does God really want what is best for us, and can we take Him at His word or not? Is God really out for our best interest, and is He trustworthy? Now, the idea then of first fruits in the Bible is I am putting On display, my confidence in the character of God. I am saying to the world by giving my first fruits, I trust the goodness of God. He wants what's best for me and he keeps his promises. So consequently, you see, the greatest indicator of your theology is your generosity. Don't tell me what hymns you sing. Don't tell me what books you read. Show me how you steward your resources because that reveals what you really believe about who God is. And God wants to make that clear because people are basically driven either by faith or by fear. And so in the Bible then, God highlights these stories of people who had hardly anything Who had every reason to be fearful and hardly any reason to be faithful. People that we would call throwaways. People on the margins. People dismissed as nobodies. And he highlights the way they give. And I'll tell you why. I'm going to illustrate it with a story I heard about a gorgeous young woman that went to a fabric store wanting material for a dress. And there was this guy behind the counter and she said, how much... Uh, is that particular fabric a yard? And he kind of spurked and said, that fabric is one kiss per yard. She said, fine, I'll take 10 yards. So he rolled out 10 yards. He wrapped it up. He's smiling the whole time. He gives it to her and he kind of puckers up. She turns to an old man behind her and says, my grandpa will pay for the bill. Thank you very much. (laughs) 
You see, it's good to get surprised about who really comes up with the money. And so, I want you to consider just a couple. There are many stories, but just a couple of stories in the Bible. And then I'll tell you a couple from our own day. The first story happened in the days of Elijah. There's a famine in the land. Times are hard. And he is sent by God to a Gentile area called Sidon. To a town called Zarephath. And there is a widow there. And she's about to die. Because she's got no food left. But somehow God had revealed to her that she was to feed his prophet. So Elijah shows up and he sees her. He says, go home and make me some bread. Now, she says, here's the deal. I got a handful of flour and a little bit of oil. My plan was to go home and make a loaf of bread for us to eat. And then we're going to die. And I want you to see what Elijah says to her, 1 Kings 17. He said, don't be afraid. You see, there's your two choices, faithful or fearful. We're all driven by one of those two motivators. Don't be afraid. Go home and do as you've said, but first make a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. So she went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. So here's a woman and it's in very tough times. And she's a woman with very small resources. And she's got to face the question that goes all the way back to the garden. Can you trust this God enough to live boldly? Is this God trustworthy? And she illustrates a foundational biblical principle. That God is eager to reward only what you are willing to release. Now let me say that again. Because this is one of the foundational principles of the Bible. God is eager to reward only what you are willing to release. This is what Jesus taught in Luke chapter 6. Look at verse 38. Give and you'll receive. You'll be given much, pressed down, shaken together, running over. It will spill into your lap. The way you give to others is the way God will give to you. God returns what you are willing to release. And by the way, this is not just in the area of material blessings. Because that verse was spoken into the context of a larger spiritual reality. Look at the two verses right in front of it. He says, show mercy just as your father shows mercy. Don't judge other people and you will not be judged. Don't accuse others of being guilty and you'll not be accused of being guilty. Forgive and you will be forgiven. See, here's the point. What do you want God to give you? Mercy? Then show some. Do you want God to give you forgiveness? Then give some. What blessing do you want from God? Because God does not bless hoarders. He blesses Givers. 
What do you want from God? More forgiveness? More joy? More peace? Do you want more spiritual insight and revelation into His Word? What do you want? Because God is not going to give it if it's just going to get bottlenecked in your spirit. If your heart's going to be a dam that just keeps it to yourself. God only gives into what will be a conduit that flows out to bless His world. So God is eager to reward, but only what you're willing to release. God blesses seed that is sown, not seed that is kept back in the granary. Story number two. It's Passover week. It's the last days of Jesus' life on earth. It's been a long day. He's been in the temple and the critics have been asking him one question after another. And finally he gets alone with his disciples. And you know what he does? He goes and watches the contribution. Mark chapter 12. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth. This poor widow has put in more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth. But she out of her poverty put in everything. All she had to live on. Now think about this. This is the last public act of ministry in Jesus' life. What does Jesus do in his very last public appearance in ministry? He watches people give. Now in the court of women in the temple, they had these uh, containers made out of metal. Thirteen trumpet-shaped containers. And what you would do is you would come and you would take your coins and you'd drop them in the containers. Now, because they were metal, it made noise. In fact, uh, the writing said that the people knew how to throw the money into the container so that it couldn't make a lot of noise. So you'd be there in the temple. This is Passover week, so the temple is crowded. And some rich guy would come in and he'd take out his bag of money and clank, 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 clank. And everybody turned around, wow, whoa, he gave a lot of money. And a few minutes later, clank, 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 clank. Wow, did you hear how much money he must have given? And then only Jesus heard. Ping, ping. And he stopped. Guys, did you hear that? Did you hear what she did? Now, Jesus isn't saying there's something holy about being poor or about even being a widow. But what this woman illustrated was the truth that he had articulated earlier in the day. They came up to him. They said, okay, Rabbi, over 600 commands in the Old Testament. Which one do you say is the most important? And he said, that's easy. Look at verse 29 and 30. The most important one answered Jesus is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all of your strength. And that woman did. It was the most religiously pure act of worship he saw the whole week. She loved God with everything she had. You see, we tend to measure love by how much you give. But Jesus measures love by how much you keep. Or to put it another way, we tend to get focused on amount. But God focuses on capacity and attitude. What was your capacity to give? And what was your attitude when you gave it? You've heard of Booker T. Washington. He was the first to establish an institute of higher learning for young African-American men and women shortly after the Emancipation Proclamation. He was trying to buy a farm on which he would establish Tuskegee Institute and it was going to cost $500, which was an incredible amount back then. And so he sent out pleas to try to get help to buy that farm. He said, here's the one he remembers the most. An old black woman came into his office. Her clothes were old and tattered, but they were clean. And she said to him, I've spent most of my life as a slave, but I want a better future for our children. I got to do my part. And she reached into the pocket of her apron and she pulled out six eggs and said, this is all I have. And this is for the children. And Booker T. Washington said, I've been given many honors and gifts in my life, but nothing touched me more than that woman. What's the first commandment according to the way you and I give? What's the most important commandment based on our stewardship? These stories call us to do a hard evaluation, don't they? And let me suggest quickly three takeaways we can get. Here's number one. That giving is even for the least. Don't be thinking, well, you know, I would like to help support the work of God and the mission of God in the world. I'd like to be a better giver at my church, but I just don't have much. Hey, read your Bible. The best givers in the Bible didn't have much. Not being able to do much is no excuse for doing nothing. Maybe you heard the story of the two guys camping in the forest one night. Now, one guy was big, huge guy covered in muscles, and the other guy was little and scrawny. And the little scrawny guy says to the big guy, you know what? If I was as big and strong as you, I'd go into that forest, and I'd find the biggest old bear I could find and tear him apart limb from limb. And the big guy says to the scrawny guy, well, you know, there's lots of little bears in that forest, too. (laughs) And here's the point. God is not interested in how you would steward what you don't have. But he cares a great deal about how you do steward what by his grace you do have. 
And hard times and small resources are no excuse for having an ungenerous spirit before God. Another example comes out of the Macedonian church. Paul has taken up money for the poor in Jerusalem, but it's hard everywhere and people are hurting. And look at what he says about them in 2 Corinthians 8. They've been tested by great troubles and they're very poor. But they gave much because of their great joy. I can tell you they gave as much as they were able and even more than they could afford. And no one told them to do it. But they begged and pleaded with us to let them share in this service for God's people. And they gave in a way we did not expect. They first gave themselves to the Lord and to us. This is what God wants. You know, studies consistently show that those with little are proportionately more generous than those with much. I know the papers are full of stories of billionaires that give a few million dollars to a charity. I'm glad they do. But proportionately, the poor in our country are much more generous than the rich. It's true right here in this church. Our very best givers in our church are some of our people with most meager means. Three years ago, Lynn Waller, one of our elders, sent me this email about his mom based on a sermon I had preached. Eileen Waller was a member of our church for many, many years. Her husband died when she was young, and she raised Lynn and Tim and Peggy Walton, all three who go to our church, uh, on a very meager income, and then lived, never remarried. She passed away in 2005. So I preached this sermon in 2007. I don't even remember what it was about, something about sharing or giving. And he told me about his mom, that after she passed away, the church sent to him a record for tax purposes of what her mother had given. And she had given our church that year $7,000. And so Lynn went and talked to Peggy, who kept her mother's books. Her adjusted gross income for that year was a little over fourteen. dollars thousand dollars and so in the last years of Aline's life she's given over 50 percent of what little she has to the church and churches across the world for 2,000 years have been built by people like this you see the greatest commandment is for everybody And often it's the least who obey it the most. Takeaway number two. My giving indicates who's in first. Remember, Jesus doesn't care a thing about making money. What he cares about is making disciples. And I'm often asked by disciples, okay, if I follow Jesus, then what percentage of my income should he have? That's easy, 100%. That's easy. That's what he said, Luke 14. You must give up everything you have to be my follower. In other words, if you're going to call Jesus Lord, you give him permission to give you insight and revelation in how to steward every single thing you own. His agenda comes first in your life. The way you prove he's first is your stewardship. Let me say again. When I give God my first fruits. I am declaring that I am going to trust his character more than I trust my fears. 
I'm going to let what the Bible says about God decide how I live more than what the headlines say about the economy. Because I want you to understand something. God can only bless anything that makes him first. Did you know that? It's morally impossible for God to bless seconds. Because if God did that, God would be lying. God would be saying there's something as important or even more important than me, and God can't do that. And so if you give God leftovers, now I'm not saying that what you give won't be used by God to bless somebody else. I'm saying you won't get the blessing for giving God leftovers. God cannot bless seconds because it's morally impossible for him to bless a lie. One of my favorite stories I read some years ago about a missionary in Africa. And there was this uh, older woman in his church. And she made these bean cakes to survive. But she was in an accident and her foot was severely injured. And so for some months she couldn't work at all. Which meant she just had no income at all. It was very hard on her. And she was so thankful to God when her foot was healed enough that she could go back to work. And she told the missionary, I've always given God 10% of what I make selling my cakes. But from now on, to thank him for healing me, he gets 33%. He gets a third of everything I make. And I hope my first week back to make three shillings profit. And God gets one. So after just two days, she shows up to the missionary and says, here's a shilling. And he was shocked. He said, you made three shillings in just two days? And she looked perplexed. She said, no. I made one shilling. The next two, I'll keep for myself. You see, she gets it. God never asks for leftovers. Because it doesn't take faith to give him seconds. You see, that's, that's the biggest takeaway. What I'm really giving is my trust. Because I give first to whoever or whatever I think has the power to bless my life. And that's been the challenge ever since the garden. See, here's faith. Faith is judging God faithful. That's what faith is. Faith is simply living consistent with the belief that I think God is faithful. And responding appropriately. And hard times don't excuse faith. Hard times are the crucible moment to choose faith. One more example of this is a young man who's new to our church. He's been here less than a year. His name is Javier Herrera. And Javier was a fashion photographer. And to be blunt, that means he made his living primarily by doing photo shoots of barely dressed women. And as he came to our church, and as he grew in his relationship with Christ, he began to see the incongruence between what he did to make money and how Jesus wanted him to be a disciple. So let him just in his own words tell you what he felt he needed to do. When we moved up here, 
it was different coming to Richmond Hills. It was you know a little overwhelming at first. It's such a such a big church, and we just thought we would never plug in. And and um, but we we went into a small group, and I think that's when everything changed. Is when we moved into a small group, we kind of became familiar to other people, and other people became familiar to us, and we kind of formed a bond with a lot of the members um, that met at the small group. So we loved it, and that's when we knew you know this is a good church for us. And it changed our lives, you know. I was a fashion photographer, and um, you know, being around that 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 type of lifestyle, and being around, you know, all the stigma that goes with with being a fashion photographer, I decided that that wasn't a good place for me as a, as a Christian. And and being at Richmond Hills and hearing the sermons and seeing, the, you know, opening my eyes almost, a lot of that kind of just made me realize that I was probably not in the right place in my life and doing the right thing. And um, I decided to quit. To quit that that business, and so that was a big, big change for me. But you know what? I, I one of the sermons that Rick was talking about was taking a risk for God, and that stuck in my head, and that's life changing for me. That's very life changing for me and my wife and our family. Is I took a risk. I took a risk, and I I quit something that I was so involved in, and I prayed, God, I'm giving you my life, I'm giving you my work. And I know that you will take care of my family and I, and that's something that I wouldn't have never have done had it not been for that sermon that opened up my eyes and it changed me. So far, God has been taking care of my family and I after our life decisions at home, and He works and He takes care of His own. And it's taught my wife and I a lot of things not to worry. You know, I don't know if you can see my hairline, but you know, I pull my hair out because I used to worry too much. But then God gives us that peace in our hearts, and He gives us that that. That calm that I can't explain. People ask me, "Well, what is that calm? What is that peace?" I can't tell you. It just happens, and that's because we're walking with God, and that's when I know that that we're going to be okay. You see, I've been uh, I've been with a lot of people in the very last hours of their life. I have never yet heard someone say, "This thing I regret. I trusted God too much." See, greater things is not just an opportunity for us to increase the impact of our church. It's an opportunity for you to increase the trust that you have in God. It's not just so God can continue His work in this church. It's about God continuing His work in you. So I want to pray for you right now, just like you pray for me. So, Father, I ask you right now to bless all who are listening to this prayer with greater resolve to take seriously your word and your promises, to refute the lie that we have been hearing since the garden that you don't have our best interest at heart, that you're not trustworthy. Father, Increase our understanding of how by the way we live and every decision we make, we can be a visible testimony to your character. Increase our faith because we're tired of letting the world tell us how afraid we ought to be. We think about Jesus, and we realize, God, you did not keep 
your very best. Help us to be more like you. For Jesus' sake, we ask it. Amen. And so this is salvation. It's trusting the character of God in Jesus Christ. It's not offering God your rules. It's not offering God your merit. It's offering God your faith in Christ alone. If you're ready to do that, you can come confessing. You can be baptized. And you can claim in faith the promise of God for salvation. You do that right now. We're going to stand up and sing.